Welcome to Destination DIY. I'm Julie Sabatier. Coming up, Destination DIY revisits one of our very favorite topics with one of my favorite DIYers. It's nerve-wracking to be responsible for someone's education when it has to do with something that difficult for people to talk about and for people to come to conclusions about. DIY means do it yourself. Sometimes I can do without help. DIY means I try to do it all by myself. La la la. 2014 has been a big year for Destination DIY. We remade ourselves as a monthly podcast, we joined the awesome podcast network Maximum Fun, and best of all, we gained a lot of new listeners. Along with the whole team, I'm really grateful for the enthusiastic response we've gotten, and I want to welcome all of the people who just discovered the show through Maximum Fun. To show my gratitude, I want to share with you a gem from Destination DIY's past and bring you a fascinating new interview with the main player. We're going to talk about an activity that's become, for lack of a better word, kind of trendy. But it's also a basic survival skill that dates back to the Stone Age. I think the real reason that I love this piece so much is because it's about people with a deep curiosity for something that seems, on the surface, to be kind of straightforward. And when you scratch just below that surface, you find the heart of DIY itself, taking matters into your own hands, both literally and figuratively. When you hear food activists in Portland, Oregon, together in a sentence, it might conjure up images of militant vegans protesting foie gras. But a different kind of activism has blossomed here in the past few years. Meat for me is not just meat. It's a pretty strong metaphor for a lot of different parts of our culture. It's a political experience. It's an emotional experience. It can be a spiritual experience. It's an intellectual exercise. It's everything to me. That's former food writer and self-described meat activist, Camus Davis. And she's not just talking about eating meat. She's talking about butchery. I remember the New York Times published an article saying that the butcher was the new rock star. And that was really the moment where I thought, this is an important turning point. And I don't know if it's a good turning point or not, but it's clearly a turning point in the world of meat. Around the same time that article was published, in the summer of 2009, Camus found herself at a turning point of her own. That's when she left the world of journalism and went to France to study butchery. Because it was the scariest part of the food world, and it was the most hidden part of the food world, and it was kind of mysterious and kind of gory, and so to me it was the most interesting part. Camus returned to Portland with a desire to spread the gospel of DIY butchering. She started the Portland Meat Collective. The PMC connects city dwellers with local farms where they can purchase whole animals. The collective also offers a series of classes to teach people how to butcher their own meat. If everyone hasn't already, pass your signed forms to me. Uh, my name is Trey. Uh, I've been retail butchering for about two years. Trey Satterfield led a pig butchering class on a Saturday afternoon in early January. I didn't read Omnivore's Dilemma or anything like that. I kind of grew up in the rural area of North Carolina and wanted to uh, get back to kind of like what I used to eat. A half a dozen students paid $225 for five hours of instruction, hands-on butchery, and a hefty portion of meat to take home at the end of the day. The class took place in a giant industrial kitchen at the Art Institute of Portland's Culinary School. If you're wondering what kind of people an event like this attracts, the answer is all kinds. 
This particular gathering included a public defender, an x-ray tech, and an anthropology student working on a thesis about the Portland Meat Collective. Trey directed the group to the center of the room where half a pig lay on a shiny metal countertop. The pig came from a farm in western Oregon. It had been split lengthwise, cleaned and gutted. Guanchali, who makes guanchali in here? Who wants to make guanchali? What's guanchali from? Camus went over it. You guys remember what she said? It's that jowl. It's the jowl piece. And what makes that so lovely? Why is, it, why is the jowl better than the belly, maybe? Why does it taste better? Fat and exercise, exactly. I, all day long, eating each other, eating apples, eating, just eating. Like, I, don't, I mean, I would be a pig. I would be a pig. Trey worked through several different cuts of meat, belly, tenderloin, ribs, hocks, and trotters. She compared French and American styles and did a few demonstrations. After about an hour, it was time to bring out the other half of the pig so the students could get to work. And you just kind of wiggle it in there, and we're going to pop that joint. Easy, easy, don't manhandle it. There you go. There. That's it. Bada bing, bada boom. The class alternated between observing Trey and taking up the knives and meat saw themselves. Three volunteers wrapped cuts of meat as they came off the pig. At the end of the class, everyone came together to munch on charcuterie and divide up the spoils. And is there anyone who doesn't want belly? Anyone who does not want bones for making stock? Pretty much everyone who attended the pig class said they were motivated by a desire to get closer to the food they eat. And they all went away with a lot more knowledge about where a pork chop comes from. But if you really want to know how that meat got on your plate, you have to go a little further back. Back to when the muscle you're cutting into was part of a living creature. The Portland Meat Collective can take you there. And if you're not ready to go there, I suggest you tune out for the next four minutes. Um, after we slaughter, uh, the rabbits will we'll go into the kitchen and each of you will work on your rabbit however you want to. But we'll give you some guidelines. On a Sunday afternoon, a group of eight brave people gathered at a private home in North Portland. Levi Cole's home, to be exact. I raise chickens and, and eat them and I raise rabbits and eat them. And if I had enough space, I'd raise my own pig and eat them. But I, I kill all of my own food. I don't buy any food at the grocery store. And it's not some sort of... Um, crusade by any stretch of the imagination. I just prefer to know where my food comes from and have all these great opportunities to find that. So it works out really well. Levi grew up on a farm and he's been raising rabbits in his backyard for about a year now. He says the ideal time to harvest the meat is when the rabbits reach about five pounds. Levi is a nurse by training and his approach to butchery is both blunt and clinical, but also compassionate. Basically the way you kill a rabbit is break its neck and cut its head off. The way that people most commonly in sort of Americana history have killed rabbits is just hang them up by their back feet, like hold them with one hand and crack them in the back of the neck with a club. Um, I don't do that because I don't like it, because they can move right before you hit them. Uh, it seems a little brutal. Levi uses his grandmother's method instead. He sits in a chair and holds the rabbit on the ground, facing away from him. He puts a broom handle across the back of the rabbit's neck. He holds the broom handle down with one foot, keeping his hands on the rabbit. I'm just holding it underneath its belly. They don't really like having that thing behind their head, so it takes a second to get them used to it. And then... He steps down on the other side of the broom. In one swift motion, he stands up out of his chair, pulling the rabbit's body upward by its back feet. And their neck's broken. That's it. As you can see, as they just close their eyes like this, and it's, it's done. It's over. I'm not sure exactly what I was expecting, but I was definitely surprised by how cute and fluffy the black and white rabbits were. 
and I wasn't able to keep my composure through the entire slaughtering process. In this clip, where a student kills a rabbit, you can hear the rabbit make a little noise, but I think the noise I made was louder. Oh, jeez. Okay. You made the job a lot easier. That was intense. <laughs> the head came off. That was pretty much the worst moment, but the head had to come off at some point. The rest of the process wasn't so bad. In fact, it was pretty fascinating. Levi showed the students how to carefully remove the rabbit's hide using a scalpel and surgical scissors. And your fingers dissect things just as well as anything does. And then once you get that apart, then you got his, his pants are off. How was his pants down? The PMC's rabbit class spanned three hours, but the actual butchery part took about 10 minutes. Camus and Levi went over their favorite rabbit recipes, and it seemed like everyone left feeling confident in their new abilities. The PMC had done a few chicken slaughtering classes before, but this was actually their first rabbit class. Camus said she was nervous. It's nerve-wracking to be responsible for someone's education when it has to do with something that difficult for people to talk about and for people to come to conclusions about. Ultimately, she says the slaughter classes get at the core of her motivations for teaching butchery in the first place. It makes you feel capable in the world. It makes you feel like you have access to something that most people don't. And it's a valuable, in my, in my opinion, survival skill in some ways. Camus Davis is the founder of the Portland Meat Collective. You're tuned to Destination DIY. I'm Julie Sabatier. It's been three years since that piece first came out, and I'm happy to say that the Portland Meat Collective is still going strong. It's even expanded to other cities. Coming up, Camus Davis talks about that time a bunch of people tried to rescue the rabbits from one of her slaughtering classes, and why chicken just freaks her out. Hi, my name is Rishikesh Hirway, and I have a podcast called Song Exploder. In each episode, a musician takes apart one of their songs and piece by piece tells you the story of how it was made. You get an inside look into the creative and technical process and a unique view of a song by hearing just the drums, or just the guitars, or say, just a Wurlitzer piano. If you're a fan of music, if you make music, or if you just like to learn how things are made, come check it out on MaximumFun.org. Thanks. I caught up with Camus Davis at an event space in Portland called Elder Hall. Camus holds butchering classes there. When I came in, the owner, Jason French, was just cleaning up from a Thanksgiving cooking class. And the smell of sweet potatoes, rosemary, and roasted turkey, it was intoxicating. Camus and I sat at a long table and chatted while people went in and out prepping for the next event. We started off talking about the meat collectives she started in Washington and California. She raised about $30,000 on Kickstarter to do it. Full disclosure, I was a backer of that Kickstarter campaign. I asked her how involved she's been in the new operations as they get up and running. After we finished the Kickstarter campaign, we chose two test markets, basically, one in Seattle and one in Olympia. Um, and the idea with, there was to have a, a more rural area and then a more urban area. So I was pretty involved with their starting up process, which was everything from going up and looking at their spaces and helping them figure out what would work space-wise to 
navigating for quite a long time the Washington Department of Ag and all of their regulations um, and trying to get them on board and understanding what the model is and then also teaching classes for them. So that was pretty involved, but now in August, I basically launched an ebook that uh, is about 100 pages and it tells people kind of everything they need to get started or to start a meat collective. In addition to Seattle and Olympia, we have one that started last year near Sacramento and then one starting in LA, one starting in Montana for sure, and then we have other people around the country kind of getting their birds in a row. And is there a kind of like a code that every meat collective kind of has to adhere to, a basic set of rules? There's kind of an understanding that the reason a meat collective exists is to draw from local farms. And that generally we're not using animals that are factory farmed, um, but which are, you know, in some way, shape or form sustainably raised. And what's been interesting is seeing how easy or how hard it is to access that kind of meat. It's actually more difficult for the rural areas to access that kind of meat than it is for a place like Portland, which is interesting. That's really surprising. Yeah, yeah. And part of it is that in Portland, we have all these restaurants that demand all of that, that kind of ingredient versus in rural environments. Mostly those farmers are just selling their animals to either large cooperatives or slaughterhouses, and then they don't want to deal with driving into the city. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So they're raised in a rural area, but they're just going elsewhere without sort of having any connection to that community. So you've said that you struggle yourself with the ethics of meat consumption. Mm -hmm. Do you have kind of a personal code of conduct that has grown out of this work that you do? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, just because you're a local farmer doesn't mean I want to buy your meat. For me, I have to ask you a lot of questions. And then I guess in learning about whole animal butchery and doing whole animal butchery for five years now, It's really just changed the way that I eat. I don't eat a lot of meat. I do a lot of meat preservation, so I'm creating these really sort of rich, strongly flavored things like prosciutto or ham or bacon, which you don't want to have a full plate of. So to me, it becomes more about an accent than anything else, Um, which is really, you know, when I went into this, I ate meat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it was kind of the main course, and... I would go out to restaurants and that's what I ordered and now it's very different. And I think that's partially because when you kill a whole animal and you butcher a whole animal, you realize you want to use all of it, but it's not all usable as a main course. You know, skin, for instance, or bones. I mean, obviously you have to put that into something else that then becomes a component of a dish. And how do you, I mean, if you're in a place where you're let's say at a restaurant or something out out of town or just a place you haven't been before, how do you navigate that? Do you just order vegetables or do you, I mean, how do you avoid becoming like the sort of Portlandia stereotype of asking the name of your chicken and how its friends were and all that stuff? (laughs) Um, Honestly, I don't eat out as much anymore. I mean, I, I guess like learning how to butcher sort of opens up as, as does learning how to cook, learning how to make your own clothes, whatever. Like it sort of opens up this whole bevy of possibilities where suddenly you're like, oh, I like butchering. I like, you know, sewing. I like making my own stocks. I like making, you know, you kind of, it's a black hole that you fall into a little bit. But because I'm in the food world and I'm buying from all these farmers, I know who's buying from those same farmers. But if you're not in Portland, I mean, like if you're, if you're on the other side of the country and you want to order some prosciutto, like I tend, you know, I mean, I'm not religious about it, but I definitely tend to order vegetarian or just if there's a little accent of meat in there, I don't tend to like 
order the ribeye. Chicken freaks me out all around, so I just don't eat it for the most part. Um, you can also tell, like you can look at a menu and you can tell the people who are getting boxes of pork chops in and putting it on a plate versus someone who's breaking down a pig every week. They'll usually have three different or four different little pork components in one dish. And you wouldn't do that if you just bought pork chops or you just bought a loin or something like that. So you can kind of read people based on their menu. That makes sense. What is it about chicken that freaks you <laughs> out? I have to ask. Uh, well, the breed of chicken that we eat for the most part in America is kind of a freak of nature. I mean, it's a Cornish cross. It grows out to that big, you know, well-endowed, <laughs> um, you know, bird that we're used to seeing in about four to six weeks. And after that, it kind of can't stand up and it can't, I mean, it, the weight of its body versus its legs doesn't work. It's a featherless bird. It, I mean, I've worked with them before, both live and dead, and they're just not it's not appealing to me and also just the way that we raise chickens in America I think and most animals in America I think is um, pretty disturbing if you spend more than about five minutes you know or five seconds looking into it after we first spoke um, you were on another little radio show called This American Life um, essay <laughs> that, that one, you wrote yeah. about uh, the people who tried to liberate the rabbits um, that you were going to use for an upcoming butchering class and you referred to death threats that you got at that mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Um, is that something that still happens to you? Uh, I, I would say like once or twice a month I get someone calling or writing or Facebooking or whatever who's, who finds out our, our existence. Usually when we announce a slaughter class, if the word slaughter scares people. It's pretty normal and it's, you know, I wouldn't call them death threats anymore. The, the death threats really were specific to that instance, but they're angry threats for sure. People who disagree, which is fine. I mean, I'm fine with people disagreeing with what we do. Um, some of them are a little scary, I would say, but most of them are just people who feel strongly. Yeah, and do you find that those people do show up in the real world? Do they show up to your classes? Do people sort of challenge you in person? Some people do, vegans and vegetarians do come to our classes, and they're, but they're not confrontational. I mean, they're usually coming because they too want to find some place between those two polarizing opposites that de the debate always presents to us. But typically we don't get, honestly, a lot of people who are like there to just fight with us. Most people come to our classes because they want to learn something or meet other people who are like-minded or have um, at least similar perspectives on this whole food conundrum. Right. And what are you looking forward to with the Portland Meat Collective in 2015? I don't know. I mean, it, you know, I started the Meat Collective so that I could learn. And I've sort of learned what I need to learn personally. And so I'm kind of excited to be able to kind of allow other people to run the classes and let go of the reins a little bit. And then I'm really excited to see how other people adapt the model to their communities. I mean, not every community is Portland, so there's gonna be different challenges with every, every place that starts a meat collective, and I'm excited to see how people adapt. I'm also excited for there to be enough meat collectives that we become like a legitimate type of business so that all of the bureaucrats and regulators don't freak out every time they hear us say what we do. So I look forward to normalization dare I say it. <laughs> but, <laughs> what would you say is the biggest challenge there? What would you say is the biggest sort of bureaucratic headache that you get when you go into a new place with this idea? 
I don't think that the USDA and the Department of Agriculture's are used to the notion of people cutting their own meat. Like it just doesn't fit into the equation. It doesn't fit into our laws and regulations. And it's sort of deemed as dangerous. Like our, you know, our government and our regulating bodies have decided all food should be produced in this one way. And so when one person says, but I wanna do it this way over here on my farm, or I wanna do it this way in my basement, they're kinda like, are you sure you know what you're doing? Are you sure, you know? So there's a little bit of nervousness there, which is sort of crazy because we should all be able to decide for ourselves how we produce our food and what we put into our body. But I think that really is what makes them nervous. They're not really sure what to call us. They're not really sure if we're a butcher shop or we're a culinary school, or but we're kind of not, we're all of those things and not any of those things at the same time. Yeah, and you kind of hinted at this earlier and I just want to come back to it. Um, sort of how DIY, what DIY means to you in your life and how it's kind of spilled over from, you know, the food world into other aspects of yeah. your life. I mean, I think for me, it's just now I just look at everything and want to know how it was made. I mean, I, it, once you learn one process that was so removed from your everyday reality, it's like every, the whole world just kind of opens up like, oh, well, how, who made that chair and how was it made, you know, or like these clothes, like who made it? What, where'd they come from? How many people touched it, you know? So, and that to me is sort of totally aggravating to live that way and also really lovely because it sort of infuses meaning into the world where otherwise I kind of didn't have it. it. Things were just there, you know? And I also think learning butchery, which before felt like rocket science, more or less, and learning that, well, you can, there are masters of butchery who are amazing and graceful and beautiful at it, but there's also people who can just kind of do it all right for themselves um, and sort of learning where I sit along that line. I'm not a master butcher, nor will maybe I ever be, but I know how to do it for myself. I know how to adapt this technique and the skill for my life. I feel like DIY should be that. It shouldn't be, this is the one way to do this thing. It should be, this is how you adapt this skill to your life. And I like to ask all of our, our guests or very successful DIYers, what is your biggest DIY disaster? Oh God, so many. I mean, I think the really devastating disaster for me was when I was learning from my French mentors, I was standing in their cold cutting room, I'd been there for three weeks and I really thought I knew what I was doing, which I didn't. And they handed me what I thought was a shoulder, a pig shoulder. And for the last three weeks, I'd been just cutting up shoulder to be put on skewers, just cubes of meat on skewers. And I didn't speak any French, but I thought I did. So they said, blah, 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 do this thing. And I said, okay, I'll start cutting that shoulder up and putting it on skewers. So I cut the whole shoulder up. This is like 50 pounds of meat. And they watched me. And then they took my knife when I was done and set it down on the table and said, that was the ham. And the ham for them is like, you know, they can charge $25 a pound for, well, maybe not that much, but they turn it into salty ham. So they can charge a lot more for it than these skewers. And so I had lost them, I don't know, several hundred dollars and was totally mortified, but they being the good mentors that they were just sort of kept pointing to my shoulder and my butt and my shoulder and my butt and trying to show me the difference between the two until I finally realized which was expensive and which wasn't. <laughs> but they let you do it. But they, they let me do it, which is a great, was a really great learning experience because now that I teach, I also understand the importance of letting people screw up, um, especially in our classes. I mean, people are so afraid of screwing up the meat and I just always say, we can turn it into sausage, you know? 
Don't worry about it. Camus Davis is the founder of the Portland Meat Collective and the Meat Collective Alliance. We've got some links to the PMC and some other media coverage of her work on our website, destinationdiy.org. Thank you so much for tuning in to Destination DIY. Our production team includes engineer Brian Kramer, editor Laura Haddon, producer Jamie Cuddy, intern Sasha Peters, and me, Julie Sabatier. Special thanks to Levi Cecil for recording my interview with Camus Davis at Elder Hall. Gray Ann created the Destination DIY theme song. Additional music in this episode comes from Jason Leonard and from Seth Lorenzi at Two Track Mind. We get legal help from Cole Haver. Support for Destination DIY comes from Leanne Locker and Associates, crafting strategic arts and letters for good. More information is at leannelocker.com. And we couldn't do what we do without the support of our super awesome listeners, like these fine folks. Hi, this is Jim Brunberg in Portland. Oregon. Hi, this is Alex Johnson in Doha, Qatar. Hi, this is Ginny Hartman in Washington, D.C. This is Lola Lynch in Hatfield, Massachusetts. This is Peter Walters from Pendleton, Oregon. This is Adam Shearer in Portland. Hey, this is Jane and Al in Seattle, Washington. This is Sophia and Talia in Portland, Oregon. The Destination DIY podcast is available for free pretty much any way you want it. Like iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. And, of course, you can always find them at their website. DestinationDIY.org You'll find photos, audio archives, and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. And they're on Twitter and Facebook. Just look for Destination DIY. And don't forget... It's not too late to support the show just like I did. 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 Just look for the Please Donate link on the website, destinationdiy.org. D-I-Y Maximumfun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.